<laughs> I have uh, prepared a fair bit of caffeine for myself just now. I'm tired. Oh, that's good. You're yeah. tired? Yeah. Yeah, for some reason. I don't know. For no good reason. <laughs> You're thinking too much about the issues of the day. I mean, I guess. I mean, I'm more like thinking about how we're going to do this episode. Maybe that's the issue of the day. That has been the issue of the day for me today. <laughs> oh, yeah? I mean, sort of, you know. <laughs> you know how we uh how we wing this stuff and it's uh it's sometimes it's a uh, it's a question of where we'll go. So, you know. Uh Yeah. So what's on your mind? I don't know. You know, it's like um I guess what's on my mind uh is how um I forget if we mentioned this during during as Afghanistan was blowing up, but it was on my mind then. And now, you know, as a foreign policy person with um, with the whole France alliance blowing up over a nuclear sub deal, uh, which I think for most of our listeners is if it's even on their radar, it's, uh, you know, pretty peripheral. But um, I guess what's on my mind is, is that that for the last two months since that has happened, um, a lot of this sort of culture war stuff that has been going on, you know, well, I mean, arguably since Trump began and is, you know, I, I don't know, changed somehow, but is still present uh, under Biden. It just seems really trivial to me now, like in a way that, that I've always felt annoyed at it and felt kind of wanting to ignore it and felt like it was trivial. But in the last two months, at least in sort of foreign policy, uh, just feels like, you know, the ugliness of the world reasserts itself with all the, I don't know, uh, all the stuff that, that, that we've been spending so much energy thinking about. Uh, it just doesn't play in it at all somehow, if that makes sense, you know? Like, you know, woke and... Um, I don't know, all of this stuff that, that <laughs> the pronoun wars and, and um, all the signaling, all the the strutting, all the, I mean, you know, cancellation. I, again, I you know, I, our readers sometimes ding me, our listeners ding me on this when I'm really dismissive of it, uh, especially because it does impact people's lives in ways that, you know, uh, screwing over the country of Afghanistan uh, or screwing over the country of France doesn't. Um, but, but you know what I mean? Like it's, 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 it feels, it feels extra self-indulgent now, all of that somehow. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, you know, like it's just, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what strikes me about the last couple of months is the return of foreign policy Mm -hmm. and, um, where I think during the Trump era, at least parts of it, there could be months where foreign policy disappeared from the agenda, you'd go on the New York Times on a daily basis, you'd barely see anything, um, except unless it had something specifically to do with Trump, you know, pissing an ally off, there always had to be a Trump tie in. So it was always seen through this domestic lens of Trump as a threat and how how bad Trump is for America. Um, I think we have the reverse now where, um, as you said, the ugliness of the world reasserts itself. And I just think about the last six, seven months, we had the Gaza crisis, of course, in That's May. Right. That's right. Um, other things that were important to me, but not to others, like Tunisia that happened in July. And um, and now August was almost entirely consumed by Afghanistan news. Yep. And now France and the submarine deal, which I can't really say much about. I, I, I haven't followed it, and I think it would probably be too hard for me to have a handle on it. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but just, I mean, worth noting that that it's just another sort of convulsion of the world. That's all I want to. Because, I mean, oh, yeah. like I said, I I think it's 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 uh, inside baseball for really exactly, for yeah. anyone who doesn't have any reason to care about it. But yeah, yeah. So I haven't been following very closely on the woke wars and um, Republicans and abortion. There's some interesting developments it seems within the Republican Party. But I can't, it's just hard for me to care enough to actually find out about these issues. Um, and we will have, in our in our next episode, God willing, we'll have um, a Republican, um, I guess he calls himself, I don't know, yeah, we'll send a right Republican friend 
um, <laughs> who we can ask more questions about this too. But um, it just seems, it does, as you put it, trivial. Like it's hard for me to get worked up about the latest woke thing because if you put it side by side with what's happened in Afghanistan, it just seems really small, the smallness of our politics. But to be fair, this was even a theme of the podcast in the in the Trump era. We would sometimes lament the fact that we we had to care about things that were ultimately silly and ridiculous. So I think that's always been a tension in this podcast is what is worth paying attention to? What is worth caring about? What is worth being what is worth getting angry about? And um American politics just doesn't seem as compelling in in those particular ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I we can return to that about like what one personally should or shouldn't um, get exercised about. I, the thing that 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 is striking to me specifically about the right um, is that uh, it itself, you know, I mean, obviously the left, as in not 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 the Biden administration. I think they're they're doing their best to sort of steer a course uh, through this, you know, throwing bones where, where necessary, but not to get completely distracted by it. But but the right overall, and I don't know, maybe this is me not also not paying attention to a certain extent, but they've, they've staked so much on a lot of these issues. And you just sort of, I don't know, look at what I, I think have been, you know, some potentially pretty uh, tough months for the Biden administration. And it feels like on the right, that most of the positions, the staked out, um, whatever, I, I, yeah, the land that they've staked out, uh, just has put them in such a position that they're unable to really capitalize on any of this. So, I mean, for me, what I'm struck by watching this stuff even more is that, I mean, again, there's plenty of time, lots can change, and so much of it. You know, if you get the right kind of leader in the right kind of moment, at like all, you know, the, the 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 seas can shift. But it just feels to me that, you know, um, the opposition to Biden has not really been able to land any real punches uh, on an administration that I think has struggled this year, and part of that has to do with I think the that our politics are focused on this frivolity in some sort of way. It's it's. Um, it has to do with you know, like, like take take COVID for example. You know, yeah, uh, that one strikes me as as maybe the most indicative of this is that, um, again, you know, to a certain extent, this is where the voters are. So so, right wing politicians have to have to cater to them. But again, there's a there's a real lack of leadership here or, or lack of ability to turn it around. But you know, they've they've staked out so much on this this personal liberty and the vaccine stuff. Um, whereas, you know, I think a, 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 uh, a capable political party um, would be doing what, what uh, basically Democrats were doing to Trump uh, for, for his handling of COVID. Now, I, I, I remain... Which is what, though? Well, I mean, I remain convinced that largely, you know, uh, it's not you know, we're actually relatively powerless in front of this thing. I mean, you know, we've had now a, a competent Democrat, you know, uh, handling the, you know, ship of state. And then Delta comes in and we're helpless before it. You know, now they blame the states that, you know, certain states haven't, you know, uh, been respectful of, of distancing and masking. And that's why this is. But I, the truth is, you know, it's like uh, I, I feel like this thing, you know, the, the wave has, has, has gone all across the world has been felt and has, has overwhelmed systems, not as badly as it could have been if we hadn't had the vaccine. But, you know, like, to a certain extent, it's, 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 uh, it is an unfair attack. But I think, you know, again, a competent political opposition party would have pilloried Biden a lot more and perhaps landed some punches, uh, some real lasting punches on COVID. Now, again, Take a step back. You know, Biden's numbers are low, and I don't think they're low simply because of Afghanistan. I think people are uh, worried at the the death rates and all the rest of that. And that probably does redound on Biden. I'm just struck that we don't have an opposition party that is able to capitalize on it. So I think Biden's numbers are low, but it's not like Republicans are soaring in some in some comparative way, largely because they've staked out this this bizarre like personal liberty, you know, uh, p 
position, like anti, you know, anti-government. Again, fine. This is what Republicans do. But it, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It, like, it does. But but I think um, I, I wonder though what it, in our two-party system uh, we don't really have disciplined, well-organized parties. So it's very hard to have consistent messaging especially with a party that, um, you know, is, has various factions. And I mean, I guess both parties are, are sort of consumed by these um, different pulls and certainly the Republican Party. Um, well, I guess it's mostly Trump's party now, but that does undermine their ability to raise the lack of competence as an issue. I mean, you can imagine them doing it, saying that Biden promised to be the competent president and they would be right to actually um, draw um, to to highlight the gap between what we thought Biden would be, this competent, steady hand, and what he's actually been, which seems increasingly um, incompetent, um, even to, even to my surprise. I expected at least some basic level of competence on on foreign policy. That and you know we've talked about that before. We don't have to rehash that. But it just seems that um, they're just at a loss to do things. Sometimes they seem unprepared. So when Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, was testifying to Congress about the drone strike that killed 10 people and seven children, mm. which is just like a level. And I think it was Rand Paul who asked him, well, um, like, like what happened there? Um, was it? Was there intelligence for ISIS K? Um, how did how did this mistake happen? It seems like this is a thing that can and should be avoided, like killing an entire family off of uh, what could potentially be uh, false or problem or compromised intelligence. And Tony Blinken just seemed totally out of it. He said he literally at one point said, "Sorry, I, I don't I don't know." He just didn't even have there was just no vigor. There was no like baseline of being able to take responsibility or to even project a sense of competence. They just seem like they're overwhelmed and they seem tired. But I just don't know what Republicans could really do on that because their base isn't doesn't find appeals to competence to be compelling. That's not what the party is about. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean I mean to your your point about it being Trump's party, I think that's that's a large part of it, right? Is that, you know, even with those ridiculous statements that he puts out, he still I think carries a large audience and you know, it's unable to it's unable to really uh no one's able to really punch through that in any meaningful way and, and uh um give a different kind of leadership voice. But at the same time, you know, it's that that to me is a mark of politics, though, if you're able to to crack that. And I think, like, you know, the, the, the healthy politician, the healthy political party is the one that figures out how to do this, right, uh, that is able to, you know, pull it out. And again, you know, it's there's perhaps a, a, a dearth of politicians who are able to, you know, a lot of the... Uh, the young sort of up and comers on the right have have staked their their um their careers on this 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 kind of know nothing populism stuff and so uh they're they're particularly as you said unable to make that case still you know i it's it's i guess i'm struck by by this gap again uh between uh, our yeah this 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 secondary stuff that that like the secondary terrain we seem to be arguing everything on. I wonder if like Bruno's, you know, imaginary politics, Bruno Machai's imaginary politics of America is somewhat adjacent to what I'm getting at here, you know? Like this this it's it's just not tied to things. I the 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 Blinken stuff, I think that's correct. I wonder if that's indicative of Biden though or whether it's indicative of Blinken himself who seems a little overwhelmed by the job from where I'm sitting. I I I, I uh, again, not to get into this this France stuff, but this is that's a huge like mess up by the State Department specifically, you know, just like managing alliances. Um, but you know, again, the flip side of it is is there's there's stuff that's happening in the world, and um, and politicians are able to take advantage of it somehow, or like 
or even countries are able to take advantage of it somehow. Uh, this this alliance now that's coming out between uh, the United States, uh, the UK, and Australia against China. I mean that. Uh, apart from all the sort of noise and the alliance management around it, that's a I think a, the first real concrete non. Um, wishy-washy sort of values-laden, you know, uh, rhetorical, imaginary political uh, move that I've seen the Biden administration make, all apart from withdrawing from Afghanistan, which is, you know, a negative move, but still very, I think, uh, at least uh, uh, intentional in this ugly world, if that makes sense. So again, yeah, you're right. I mean, the Republicans have a problem there. um, But I, it's... But also, I would, Demir, I would yeah. ask, like, does it even matter what Republicans say or do? We, we are presuming that the way politics works is that voters listen to what a party is saying and doing, and they're able to shift their opinions accordingly. I would suggest that it's inelastic, that no matter what Republicans do or don't do, it doesn't actually change their fundamental political position it might it might shift things one or two percent in either direction but i don't really know a lot of voters who are thinking to themselves oh if only the republican party had better messaging on competence in regards to covid then i would you know support x candidate i just don't think there's much evidence that there's a lot of people who think about politics that way the more tribal politics becomes, it actually doesn't matter what your politicians say or do. You're going to vote for the party you vote for regardless, and you've already made that decision. Um, and um, I, I just don't think there's a lot of room for for shifting. Um, and that, you know, I think that for the foreseeable future, you're going to have presidents who have an approval rating of 40 to 50% no matter what they do. Trump dropped a little bit below that to maybe 37% at some point. But it was remarkable that no matter what Trump did for most of his four years, his approval rating barely ever budged. And again, that goes to inelasticity. um, Is politics responsive to what actually happens? And this goes to the, the, the issue of fantasy. If politics is tribal and fantastical, um, nothing really matters. I don't mean to get nihilistic here, but I think there is this sense that um, what politicians or policymakers do and how voters perceive what they do, the gap between those, the gap between those two things is is quite large. Don't you think, though? There's there's a kind of I don't know uh, two way street dialectic. If we we're going to get fancy, uh, uh, like around how politics works you know i mean like looking now i think you know biden's fading like he's 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 an old guy i I, i'm still tempted to speculate that a lot of the troubles that the administration's in uh are partly due to the fact that um that biden's old and doesn't have his hand on the wheel all the time so there's a lot of like nonsense that happens underneath and it's a little it's a little all over the place but you know you take a step back and like put biden to the side um, Trump was uh, a uniquely uh, hateable character, but at the same time, um, you know, I like he 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 was also like an intensely political person who, you know, managed to transform the Republican Party uh, from being a party of big business and trade and 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 uh, you know on the margins. Uh, yeah, you know, like the, 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 not fully the globalist party, but like the globalist business party, right? Uh, and he's managed to like basically transform them, uh, through an act of his own will, you know? Um, the other, the other, you know, comparison, uh, just looking across the pond, right, is, 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 you know, you, <laughs> with, with Emmanuel Macron and, uh, and, and, and Boris Johnson, you have also similarly, Unique figures now. French politics and and, and British politics are, are different, um, but but you know, it's it's fascinating to see that 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 uh, they seem to, while still playing you know the domestic political game, are able to also somehow do stuff in the world uh, and to each other um, in a way that's that's that that speaks of this kind of 
um, the ability of, of, of a politician to actually do politics, to not be completely uh, captive to one's party. And so, you know, I mean, yeah, we're, I guess what we're talking about is we're, we're looking at or for that kind of unique character. I don't know. What do you what do you think of AOC now, you know, this many uh, years into her sort of political debut? Like, do you think she's you know, I, I don't know if she's got the, the the ability to transform national politics, but I don't know. She's active somehow. She's doing stuff. I find her really unpleasant and more so more and more so as time goes on but i don't know how do you what do you what do you think of her i i think um i, I think she's brilliant in her own way yeah like Trump. And i'm very impressed by her yeah. i wouldn't i don't know if i i don't i don't i don't want to give the impression that i think they're comparable i don't love that because yeah. um i think she's a good person i think she's genuine i think she actually wants to improve things i know that you don't like that kind of talk to i don't me i don't <laughs> But I think she's like I. I care if someone's a good person. Mm. I when I look at a politician and I see something genuine, a sense of compassion, empathy, anger over injustice. That's one of the reasons that Bernie appealed to me because it felt real to me that he was angered by the state of things, and that suggests to me that he's like a sentient human being with a heart. Um, I think AOC. What I. I like the fact that she's always pushing mm-hmm. and the whole tax the rich thing. So for people who missed this, I guess it was a pretty big deal, even though it was pretty trivial, which gets back to the original point. But she went to the Met Gala in New York, the, the big party, um, and she was wearing the dress that said tax the rich in like red in like red letters in a very sort of stark way. And people were just talking about this for days on end. And I saw people even debating specifics of tax policy as yeah. a result of yeah. what she had provoked. Yeah. Um, so people are complaining about her. And, oh, like, I remember people would be like, well, tax the rich. That's already what our progressive tax system does. The rich are already being taxed, which then pushed other people to comment on marginal tax rates and income tax versus wealth tax, making the obvious point that um, even if you have a 40% income tax, that's not going to affect billionaires as much because most of the money they make is not through salaried income. So you have these interesting tangents, and AOC, just by going to a party and wearing a dress, was able to like consume people's minds and get in their heads and that is the skill. That is a talent that you look for in young politicians or any politician for that matter. She has it. Yeah, it's get in their heads, but also set set the set the terms of the debate in a lot of ways. You know, I, I'm as you were talking, I was, I'm still trying to think if I can retell this anecdote without. Uh, yeah, I probably can't retell this anecdote because it was an off the record conversation. But it was the political leader, and it was like basically in in the anecdote that he told. Um, it was just the importance of a gesture that I, it really struck me on this. It was, it was, you know, he, he was just saying that, you know, the importance of a, of a political leader to do a very theatrical kind of thing that that basically sets the tone for whatever debates to follow, you know, and it's it's you look at Boris Johnson in so many ways is, is you know, he's 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 a character and um he he says things and does things and and people roll their eyes sometimes and they think he's completely unserious but i don't know you know i i could imagine him actually being a consequential you know one of the most consequential potentially prime ministers of i don't know the last uh, since churchill perhaps you know i mean he could also end up uh, destroying the united kingdom that would also be consequential but that would be very consequential <laughs> yeah i mean trump trump is a similar i mean he's one of the most consequential presidents of the modern era of any era yeah um, I don't think Biden will, will be remembered in, in such a way. It's certainly not Obama. Well, so it's what it is, 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 again, it's like, what is this politics, right? Like, what is this? Um, because I, I guess I'm not convinced that what you're, you're saying that, you know, like polarization is such. And I mean, I, I think maybe the way to, to qualify what you were saying earlier that, you know, voters vote for the team, but the team is, is now increasingly irrelevant and empty vessel so what you need i mean maybe it's it's this is an era of demagogy that we're getting at you just need a a larger than life person who knows how to fill that whatever 
you know, vessel the party is with whatever it is that, that gets people excited. And then, you know, it's the, the, the reality is, is that, uh, the 36% or the 40%, what's Biden at now? Like 45 or something? 43. 43. So, so you've got a floor, you know, uh, each party has its floor of like diehards that just wouldn't consider the other party. But if that floor is like, you know, let's say 40% on, on either side, let's say 35% on either side, let's be, that's still, you know, that's a, that's a, a good room for maneuver in there for, for a president to be able to, to, you know, both energize, um, uh, his or her base shape the discussion and ideally tried poach from the other side, you know, and like get, get that sort of kind of central thing. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, described that way. It doesn't sound like a particularly diseased or unhealthy kind of politics. Sounds no, like I, I didn't say it was unhealthy per se. I just don't think we're, we're ever going to see large swings in support for one party or the other, that what is essentially being fought over is five to 6% of the electorate. And as long as you get like 1% more than you would otherwise get, that can be enough to put you over the edge. But um, but it's we're basically going to be a 52-48 country or 51-49 in either direction for the for, unless there is something striking. I just don't know what that would be. Some kind of, you know, people, um, you know, you, you sort of have a stasis and then something very big can happen that shakes that sort of punctuates the equilibrium, if you will. Yeah. And that can happen every couple of generations. I think some people thought that COVID would offer the possibility of a new kind of politics or shift things enough where, you know, people reconsider their tribal affiliations. That did not turn out to be the case. So I'm not sure, like, if a if a plague like um if a plague can't do that what can wow, who, really people were saying that i i i'm not i'm not trolling at all like i that's that's surprising to me that, that i mean i guess i guess I, I i guess i've counter trolled people with that by saying that if aliens came we would just go to war with each other but i mean uh i i really people thought that 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 covid would let us come together i mean really people like i remember some of that talk early well maybe not maybe not like uh, Republicans and Democrats. Well, I don't know. No, they I, meant the world, right? Like we're going to come together and, and like cooperate, and international global government would come out. I, I heard the, that kind the, of stupidity. Or the culture wars won't matter as much. That people will focus on what's really important, and that's fighting this pandemic. I mean, you might recall, like Barry Weiss um, wrote something maybe a month after the pandemic started, where it was along the lines of, "Oh, the the culture war has disappeared." Like. Something like that. You remember this piece? Yeah, rings a bell. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> this is where this is where we started with this podcast, right? Like the 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 whole sort of uselessness of this stuff, and and yet we persist in it. I don't know. You know, like it's funny. It's funny that that in a way, in a way, like when I see something like COVID, um, I don't see it in the same terms as something like I don't know, uh, like a real war. I think it's a very different thing. You know, it's kind of like. I, I guess I I I wouldn't see um, I I don't see climate change in the same way that like climate change is gonna is gonna affect and like change stuff for us at all. You know, I mean, I, we we had Nils Gilman on several months ago at this point, and uh, uh, you know, he has this idea of avocado politics that you're gonna get. Uh, you know, when when environmentalism comes to the right, you're gonna get like that kind of eco-fascism type stuff, you know, keep immigrants out and like, you know, the 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 uh, uh, sanctity of our lands and whatever. But like, you know, it, it won't change politics. I think that's right. You know, like you're not going to get uh, any kind of transcendence about these kinds of things. Um, I, I really do think it, 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 it comes down to um, things like war are the, the, the main things that that can uh, and do shift these sort these sorts of things, you know, uh, largely because um, they uh, they end up. Uh, well, I don't know. I was about to say that it's like the the sense of threat, but I suppose there's some kind of shared sense of threat against a against a virus. I I think it it has to do with with you know the what you were writing about in your your Carl Schmidt essay, the the friend enemy distinction, and like you know uh, saying that. A virus, or you know, our collective uh, inability to get our emissions down as the enemy—that just doesn't cut it. You know, it's just like that's a that's a a problem to be solved. It's not it's not anything that one could imagine what the enemy is, and it's it's it is there is something human about that. Like Hot Carl is right about that somehow. 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, now that I'm thinking about this a little bit more, listening to you talk, Demir, I, I think so. Here's how I put it. The culture war subsumes everything that is not existential. And we thought that COVID might be existential in the beginning. It, ex, but of course, like looking, I mean, in a way, it could never be existential. It wasn't actually a threat to the United States as a country. So, just, so yeah, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. But that is a little bit different than saying that the U.S. is under existential threat. And I think that's where things really hinge. Most Americans don't see COVID as an existential threat. And therefore, they haven't been moved to rally behind some kind of common vision. And I think relatively few countries, smaller ones have been able to do that to some degree, but large countries haven't. Um, and um, the last time that that we were able to transcend culture, well, I, the culture war wasn't as big um, in the early 2000s, but the last time we were able to develop some sense of, of common shared purpose was after 9-11. And we're recording this, I guess, uh, you know, a week or so after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it's worth noting that that was a, you know, a kind of border breach, that the sanctity of American territory was violated. That sense that we were under attack, not in a metaphorical sense, but in an actual sense, because climate change, as you say, I mean, it's it's a... It's it's sort of um, it's real, but it's also like a metaphor. Um, it's something that is not a proximate threat. It's hard to feel. It's hard to quantify. It's about fears of what might happen in the future instead of an attack that's happening right now in the present moment. So all this affects how we perceive our sense of threat. I mean, we can we can lament that and say we wish it were otherwise. But if we understand how human nature operates, we know that collective action on climate is not actually probably going to happen because we know how humans operate. And that's why I can't, I can't summon myself to get sufficiently angry or worked up about climate change, partly because of my view of human nature. I believe climate change is real. I just don't believe that we can do enough to transcend the collective action dilemma. Um, and, you know, you mentioned my essay on Carl Schmidt, and maybe this is a good time to just mention, just remind folks who are so willing, who are who may be willing to uh, to subscribe, to consider doing so, that this was an S a Friday essay I wrote, um, I guess maybe a Four month weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, a month, a, ago. a month ago. And for those of you who are new to the podcast or recent, Demir and I write something called the Friday Essay, where we alternate each week. It's for subscribers only. If you're interested in that, we'll put a link for this specific essay on Carl Schmidt. Um, for those of you who don't know him, he's a fascinating and rather dark character. Um, one of the most, I would say, influential philosophers of the 20th century. He did uh, he did eventually join the Nazi party. So he was a Nazi. But he's also someone who has, con to this very day, you can see the echoes of Carl Schmitt's philosophy everywhere, or at least in a lot of places, perhaps disturbingly so, because you might, you might ask yourself... Why was why is someone who would have otherwise been tarnished by his Nazi affiliations? How has he been able to sustain this level of influence and impact in philosophy in the intellectual world? And he has. I mean, I, I'd, and, I'd say even worse. It's just like his ideas that fed into a lot of that stuff are are still relevant. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's. I mean, Heidegger is important too, and he was a Nazi. But you know what I mean? Like, if you read Carl Schmidt, sorry, it's a little aside here from your from your marketing pitch, but it's it's that it's that the ideas resonate in a way that you know the abstruse you know metaphysics of of, of Heidegger just don't in any way. That's what's troubling about it. Anyway, yeah, go and on. I, like in, in person, I can't really sum up Heidegger in a couple sentences. Correct. Now, it's yeah. also hard to sum up. Schmidt in a couple sentences, but you can sum it up. You can sum up one of his biggest insights in about four words. Uh, sorry, three. The friend oh, for <laughs> the friend enemy distinction. Yeah. And in your most recent Friday essay, Demir, you talk about Schmidt and you you sort of approach it from a different angle. So if you guys are interested in that, you can go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Um, and we'll include links to both of those essays. And you'll, if you're not subscribing and you just want to maybe get a sense and, and just explore it, but you'll, you'll see an excerpt for both 
um, which might which might um, tempt and tantalize. But in any case, we the friend enemy distinction is it, what it tells us basically is that humans are weak. We are there's a darkness about us, and we need to find enemies. And politics is essentially about the search for an appropriate enemy. This is not to say that we should search for enemies, just to say that this is a descriptive thing. This is the way we have been. This is the way we are. We can sublimate the desire or need for an enemy, but it's always there bubbling underneath the surface. Yeah, yeah. And I think that 9-11 brought this out, and we didn't think it was that bad because the enemy was abroad. But obviously, I would argue that it was a very, it was extremely destructive. We wanted this enemy. We wanted revenge. And there was a period of 20 years, give or take, of darkness where big chunks of the rest of the world had to pay a price for American excess. And, you know, as recently as just a few weeks ago, you know, a family, a family was killed because we can't, you know, um, we felt a need to demonstrate to the American public that we could fight ISIS-K and we could, we could kind of hit them back. Um, and we, we, we found, we, we, we found someone to target. It was just the wrong, it was just the wrong target. Um, so this is, um, and you made an interesting point and I think some people disagreed on Twitter, Demir, where I think you tweeted something out. It was French people rioting. I don't know why they were rioting, (laughs) but do you want to tell us what you said? I think it was an insightful, um, observation, but it was interesting that some people were really bothered by what you said. Yeah, I, I, I could dig up the tweet right now. I might have already deleted it because it auto deletes at this point but uh, oh, okay uh yeah something along the lines of just that like yeah we mustn't forget that this is the you know the 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 core motivating sort of factor uh underneath all politics and i think if, if we if we if we forget that uh you know we miss we miss that that element of 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 you know what it is that that you know human nature is about you know i like i i really don't want necessarily us to spend like too much time on 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 carl schmidt because i i do think that that you know there's there's a lot of bad there and i think that that uh people who get uh caught up in carl schmidt end up in bad places kind of like carl himself well they well we want we want people i think ideally to understand the dangers of this kind of thinking to say on one there's one step number one is there is this dark undercurrent in human nature that politics is struggle and struggle requires an enemy and a friend and that and that takes over everything else but then to say that that there might be a part of human nature that you know makes us inclined in that direction but that we have to fight it i think the danger of the schmidtian premise is that if if you keep on running with it you 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 begin to Im- you begin to embrace the idea of an enemy. What I think what we're saying, what both of us would say, is that we have to realize the danger and push back and understand how that temptation for finding a scapegoat or finding an enemy. And this is why, I I mean, I think it's fine to... Uh, we'll probably be internally divided as a nature as a nation for the foreseeable future because I don't think we'll be able to find an external enemy that's convincing enough I don't think China is going to be able to fill that gap. And you know what? That's maybe for the best. I mean, we don't need to be united internally against a foreign enemy. I think this is preferable. What we have now, which is, hey, sometimes there doesn't have to be an existential threat. We don't have to find another 9-11 moment and rally the country around some vision for God knows what against God knows what enemy abroad. So if I had to choose between the post 9/11 moment and what we have now, I have no doubt what I would choose. I don't want to go that was a dark time. I know it's become really um it's become obscured because so much has happened in the last 20 years, but the narrowness of public debate in the post 9/11 moment, it was it was suffocating. And I'm just so I'm happy that we like as far as I can tell we're never going to get to a point where like 90% of the country marches in lockstep around a stupid idea where they, where Bush had like, I don't know, whatever that approval rating was right after 9-11. And because of that, he could get away with, with um, any number of abuses, civil liberties abuses, the Patriot Act, 
and then ultimately the Iraq war, which had bipartisan support. We never want to go back to that moment again. Look, you know, hearing you talk like this, you know, I I, I have my differences um, and debates with sort of the restraint school of of, of uh, the foreign policy people uh, who, you know, are nominally well, maybe that's not fair to say nominally, but they consider themselves realists, but but really, you know, talk about uh, that, you know, America, America is just unchained in foreign policy and really should just do a lot less. And that, you know, not only that that would lead to better outcomes in the world, uh, but I, just now listening to you talk, it, 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 it dawns on me something that I hear people who aren't even necessarily doing the theory, but are, you know, fellow travelers of this. Um, it's that it's that feeling that you know, foreign policy elites have just like screwed up so much. And partly it's by, you know, or at least arguably partly it has to do with uh, how, uh, you know, success in foreign policy is sort of based by, you know, creating these kinds of consensus around stuff. I mean, you know, when I was writing the uh, the other Friday essay, you know, right before 9-11, um, the 9-11 uh, anniversary uh, about maximalism. I just went backwards, like, you know, looking at the, the history of the Cold War. And, and, and you're really struck there by, uh, you know, what, what uh, well, a couple of things I was thinking through as you were talking just now. You're struck by uh, the role the Soviet Union ends up playing. You're struck by um, how cleverly Truman sets up basically the 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 cold war narrative uh how 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 well placed and articulated and successful it is that it lasts for the longest time even though it doesn't create like anything like a stable consensus it it creates a framework for just that americans then i think got very used to thinking in those ways and you know i mean i, I like the the sort of you know uh, you get upset. They get upset when you say that it's an isolationist view, and I, I do think that's unfair. But that you know that there's this idea that maybe underlying this is that there's there's something really toxic about that dynamic that arose from Truman on. Now, again, I, I I think the the Truman administration and uh, the United States during the Cold War in many ways, uh, you know, was acting given the realities that it was facing. It was, you know, uh, a fundamental uh, struggle given nuclear weapons, given the stakes. Um, And so, you know, I guess it could have gone other ways. I mean, Kennan didn't really like how his uh, containment strategy was applied, I think, during the Cold War and, 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 and the way it took shape. So, I mean, I guess there, there are different visions for how it could have played out. But I guess I'm struck by, you know, when you're saying um, that consensus after 9-11, uh, the thing that's always struck me that, you know, that that at least the foreign policy community was really lacking that kind of consensus, that glue, that fear um, in the 1990s, you know, after the end of the Cold War, but before 9-11. And there was, I would say, a real kind of hopeful, <laughs> this is grotesque to say, but a hopeful kind of belief that uh, the global war on terror would provide this kind of, you know, um, familiar uh, conceptual glue to allow America to act abroad. And I, I would, I guess the, you know, the, the most favorable argument, you know, the most charitable argument that, or the most charitable uh, um, expression of the argument that the restrainers would say was that all of that is very toxic, that it's always uh, an inflating of problems that creates its own problems and is sort of self-justifying, and that, you know, uh, America really should mind its own business more um, because it just ends up in these, these kinds of horrific things now, again, you know, I mean, the the, the danger there is that, you know, I, I, that gets you into like really weird counterfactuals about the Cold War, like, you know, and, and a lot of America blaming there that, you know, it's it's American paranoia and American, you know, ideology that 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 esc- that that uh, made the Cold War a lot nastier than it needed to be. I don't I don't buy that personally, but it's just interesting uh, 
to that I, I feel like I, I I I heard an echo. Though I know you're not a restrainer. I mean, for for democracy promotion oh, reasons God. and oh, others. Yeah. But I, I just it was interesting just hearing your your last little talk that I could I could almost imagine. You know, uh, you like a real common ground between between like the restraint school and you if one squints, you know, like. Well, I mean, there there was common ground. I mean, I, I mean, that's why I supported Bernie primarily because of foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was overlap and there was a moment where it seemed like. Um, well, I mean, I mean, as our dear listeners will know, um, you know, I. I think that I'm I'm a little bit confusing and I and people got very confused during the Afghanistan stuff because for you know um wait did we talk about this last time which one <laughs> I think I was telling someone about this that if you um if you followed my tweets yeah I mentioned this last time I think if you followed my tweets during the withdrawal process and 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 Biden's incompetence and all that you might have thought that I was someone who was against withdrawal and that I would have supported a perpetual presence. And I, and that, in that sense, I was very hawkish. Yeah. But then if you read my Atlantic essay, yeah, that's right. where I look back at the last 20 years and the original sins, you might have thought that I was like a lefty restrainer type. Yeah. And I think there are these two impulses within me that are um, at war would be a, a slight exaggeration. But I think that's where um, I, I think it's good to have a creative tension in your own thinking. So I'm not necessarily trying to resolve that tension. People will say, Shadi, can you resolve this for us? Help us understand how you can hold these two views simultaneously. Sometimes it seems like there are like different two different analysts who are fighting for supremacy. But I think that's fine. I think it's actually unfortunate that there's a lot of analysts who try to be so consistent or too coherent. Coherency is maybe nice in some ways, but I don't think that's what writers or analysts should be aspiring towards is to have a kind of a kind of um, a straitjacket of coherence. I think there are consistent things that you can see in everything that I do. Um, and people need to have principles, they need to have integrity, and they need to stand up for what they believe is important to them. But I don't think people should mistake that for a kind of a limiting coherence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, though, do you, do you, but how do you, I mean, push you on, on, on this whole sort of thing? I mean, uh, very specifically on the, on the, the, the need for an enemy, uh, you deplore that to a certain extent, in foreign policy. Uh, maybe it even pollutes us and creates, like, bad sort of stuff. I mean, like, how, 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 how much do you believe that? How much do you believe that, that you know, um, having, you know, a driving force for foreign policy is... is I mean, I, clearly you'd like it to be, it to be creating a better world. I mean, you know, in my essay, I, I made sort of the, the passing argument that that wasn't motivating enough in the 1990s, you know? Even though, you know, Americans don't really care, so a president can do a lot. Like, you know, Clinton was able to talk a lot about it in the second term and, and uh, you know, do do interventions and, you know, uh, become a more activist foreign policy president, you know, not really pay any cost for it. Um, but uh, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? Like, I mean, is it, is it, is it bad that, that, that we look for this kind of coherence? Is it... Um, you know, if if you you do take the sort of you know friend enemy stuff you're talking about with with Schmidt seriously, um, that basically you know uh, we we won't be able to to without you know creating a kind of boogeyman we won't be able to have anything like a consensus around foreign policy. So then foreign policy just becomes this kind of uh, technocratic exercise of 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 you know managing interests. Uh, and not really doing anything. I don't know. Like tease that out for me a little bit. Like, do you do you think that's a uh, hmm. that's a that's a tough one? Yeah. To where, where do you where do you come down on that? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think that. So my goal essentially is to take the premise of the friend enemy distinction mm -hmm. and to channel it constructively. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do you do that effectively? Can it actually be channeled constructively? And I do think that 
a national mission. Uh, it's a strong phrase. Mm. Um, and also, I suppose it harkens back to your, your latest essay <laughs> on, which people should definitely check out. It's funny. I mean, the first two paragraphs, as I said on Twitter, um, which all of you can read, um, is is kind of like amusing, unexpected, and, and striking. Um, well, the piece is called The Missionary Position, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be too crass, and I, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what that means. Yeah, just read, read the first two paragraphs. It'll take and then you'll the understand what you. the missionary position is. <laughs> um, but, look, I think that the national, like, if, if we want to have a mission abroad, I think that... Um, Prioritize talking, talking openly and proudly about the values that we want to promote is a good way to get Americans. I don't want to say excited about foreign policy. That's maybe overstating it. I don't think that that's even really possible for most Americans. But to make them feel proud of what we do abroad and to to get their buy-in, um, and to to kind of to kind of match our our values at home with our values abroad, and to I think um, lessen the gap between so for, foreign policy shouldn't be seen as a completely separate thing. It shouldn't be seen as something just for experts and just for technocrats. You should get Americans to care about it. Now, if you bring up something like Afghanistan, they won't care about it if you're talking about it in those very narrow terms. But if you say, "Hey, should we be?" Should we care about democracy abroad? You'll find that usually majorities say that we should care about democracy abroad. So we have to think about how do we, how do we um, frame ideas so that it has resonance. And the only way you're going to have resonance with Americans is by speaking to what American values are or what they used to be um, or what we think they are. And I just don't know how you can do foreign policy without reference to the founding ideals of our country. That doesn't require an enemy. Well, I guess unless you consider the enemy to be dictatorship or authoritarianism, and this is where I think Biden's, some of his instincts in terms of talking about the coming struggle in international affairs as one between democracies and autocracies is actually a good idea. The question is, how do you do that where it's not just, where it's not just rhetoric or where it's not just hollow? I think there's a hollowness to what um, to, to Biden's rhetoric, and that's what I take issue with. But I think we have to start. We have to think about how do we try to rally Americans behind our own place in the world. We feel there's a kind of self hatred that has pre- become more predominant on the left because we think that we're bad at home and abroad. I would prefer us to think about how we are good in some ways at home like we're not completely evil we're not completely defined by by our original sin of slavery if you want to put it that way and we're not complete we're not completely defined by our various original sins abroad that we can be better we can do better and i this is but this is me idealizing it because i think that the partisan divide in america makes it very hard to unite americans around a common vision i do think china does represent part of the puzzle I don't think we should make the China, uh, the, 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 um, China into an enemy, per se, but should we have a confrontational policy where we're able to look at China and say that we are different, and we understand that we're different because we see what the alternative is. Everything is relative. You, you, can't, um, you can't know what a democracy is unless you know what a dictatorship is. You can't have one without the other. If there were only democracies in the world, we wouldn't have a need for that distinction. Democracy matters because there are non-democracies, just like you wouldn't have Islamists if there weren't secularists. You wouldn't have Democrats if there weren't Republicans. That's where the friend-enemy, there always has to be a contrast in politics. <sighs> Again, I know there's a lot there. No, a lot there, but you know, it's it's it's, and maybe this is a a way to to like get us back to the uh, to the original point when we started out here. Um, Again, I I I keep thinking back to our our friend Bruno uh, and his sort of uh, you know uh, ideal politique and whatever whatever it is that 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 we Americans end up doing and and talking about these sorts of things. But you know what what. What's funny about it 
is uh, how much we're we're trapped and really are just talking to ourselves as the real world out there does its thing. I was struck recently. There was that that uh, you know Twitter thread, um, pretty savagely dismantling uh, your acquaintance Rod Dreher, who was in uh, in uh, gave some interview to you know some opposition paper in Hungary and was just shown up uh in in you know i don't know just having a a pretty superficial understanding of what's going on in hungary but not so much what struck me was not so much the superficiality of his understanding it's that he seems to have been living there for a while and has to like hasn't actually been living there like he's been living within the confines of whatever culture war struggle he thinks he is living in and he thinks is global. Um, and and two things struck me. One is how, like, he doesn't seem to, like, how he seems to be living in this his own little world, but also how all the reproaches that his interlocutor, his this journalist who's, you know, an opposition to Orban, um, whenever he corrects him, uh, I felt like Dreyer himself falls back uh, on this uh, very American kind of, uh, set of, you know, I don't know, pieties about about how democracies are. And he seems to have believed that, you know, Orban's Hungary is actually functioning just as well as, you know, modern America with its pluralism and its debate and things like that. So whenever it was pointed out to him that, that uh, you know, there were uh, controls on this media and that media and, you know, Orban was shutting down here and doing that and playing this game or that game... Uh, you got a sense in, you know, in in from Dreyer's responses that he was uh, taken aback and and a little shocked in in a very American sort of way. Because if he was a true Orbanist, you know, Orbanists have really good answers for all of that every time, and they don't say, oh, oh, you know, I mean, you don't fall back on these sort of like American pieties to a certain extent. So again, it just shows that even even like you know, right wing populists, authoritarian fellow traveler types, whatever you want to call it, integralist types, uh, they're still living in this weird American fantasy that's not actually tethered to the world in any real way, you know? Yeah, and look, and, and to, to Dreyer's credit, if it, uh, if I can use that term, yeah. you know, he said, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he answered questions, which I, even I, as someone who doesn't follow Hungary very closely, I basically know the answers you can use for questions like that yeah, if you yeah. really want to defend, ha- defend yeah. Orban's policies. That's I was right. surprised, but also heartened that, you know, Rod is sincere and genuine enough to not, like, make shit up on the spot. And that was his honest reaction at the moment. He's like, hey, sorry, I didn't really know it was that bad. I didn't know. I'll look into that. Um, but, it is concerning, obviously, that he wasn't aware of those things after living there. But that speaks to me about that American, yeah. I don't know, is it, it's naivete. It's not naivete because that's dismissive. It's not that. It really is that Americans are live in their own heads and talk in their own language to themselves about themselves. Like, it's really weirdly self-centered in a way. And, and that's what, I guess that's at the core of what I sort of wanted to talk about in this is like, our politics... And all of this, like, woke and culture war shit is about us. And it's us, like, looking at ourselves, looking in the mirror and just talking to ourselves about ourselves. And then stuff happens in the world and we still talk about it, uh, about what does this mean about us? You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's... We become a narcissist. I mean, maybe we were always thus, but it's incredible how narcissistic we are in our debates. I mean, the Afghanistan debate was about us, basically. It wasn't about Afghans. That's right. It was about who lost Afghanistan, who was bad, who did the wrong thing, when did, you know... Um, and what does this say about us that we're doing this is the other thing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's worse than that. It's like, what does this say about, like, who we are as a nation? What kind of stain does this leave on our moral character? Like, good Lord, you know, that, that, that's that's quite literally the least of it at this point, you know? Like, you, you, you've screwed this up. You screwed up the, the withdrawal, uh, you know, whatever. And, and uh, it's but, the, yeah. the moral content of it, like, it's always struck me as, like, there's so much of this, and it's just... I don't know. I, I, I find it just bizarre. I, I, I accept it at this point. I've been in this country long enough. But I guess it's that's what's jumping out at me at this moment when we look at when we look at like again the world happening, like real events are happening 
and and yet somehow we're still talking to ourselves. I guess that's that's at the core of what I, I wanted to talk about for this last hour. And I guess we yeah. we've sort of done that. Yeah, and I think look, I, I didn't wanna I didn't ever engage in this because I don't think it was the right time to make this point during the whole Afghanistan debacle to kind of score political points domestically against woke people. Yeah. But you you do sort of have this which is just a prelude to say that that's sort of what I'm going to do right now. I just mm-hmm. don't think it's in good taste. And now we're maybe a couple of weeks away from that where we can kind of reflect. But I, I do think it was striking. And I, I did see people tweeting about this like, oh, like we're talking about how like evil America is and how bad America is towards like um, towards women, for example. Or that when the abortion, when um, Texas was restricting abortion, abortion access um there was a whole trending twitter hashtag like american taliban right. or texas's taliban <laughs> yeah. and it just it seems so absurd that people would actually like compare living in america to living under the taliban it just once you do once you look at that juxtaposition it just it's absurd and it's again it's this kind of self-centered it's like something very bad is happening like 7,000 miles away, and we find a way to make it about Texas yeah, yeah. and to attack a governor who we think sucks. Yeah, And it just, at that point, you're just like, this is silly. Yeah. I, the flip side, of course, is that, you know, foreign policy has never mattered to, to voters. So, and, you know, and, and it's the rest <laughs> well, of I mean, this. that's not entirely true, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it matters when like Pearl Harbor <laughs> happens or, or 9-11 happens. And all of a sudden, you, they, as you say, you've got my attention. But like, yeah. until then, uh yeah. Well, on that note, on that so note. we're going to do a bonus episode right now, yeah. Demir, right? Yeah. So if you guys want to join us as we continue our conversation, um, please feel free to. Um, it, you Well, well, I guess you would be free to, but you would have to subscribe. So, um, And we usually do these bonus episodes um, after the main episode where we kind of like dig deeper and say things that are a little bit more unfiltered for a smaller audience because we know we can get away with it because it would be very hard to act. I mean, not that hard, well, actually, well, I guess I guess when we, we become really big in like five years or 10 years, people can kind of look back at the bonus episodes and make it harder for Demir and I to get jobs in future administrations yeah, because one of our fantasies. Yeah. yeah, one of our fantasies on this podcast is that Demir will be national security advisor and I'll be deputy yeah. national security advisor and it will test our friendship. Yes. But I mean, all this comes into question if people do look back at our completely unhinged bonus episodes, one of which you might listen to in a few moments. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye.